Tonight marks the end of our series as we look at generosity, uh, and we're going to look at one of the most, uh, the most well-known parables that Jesus told, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We know the words of this parable very well, uh, but so does most of society. It's taught in assemblies up and down the land. It's a story which has become uh, written into part of society's folklore and has been reduced to a general call of help those in need. Or Jesus says, do good to others. So often it's the best stories, the most well-known stories that are the hardest to understand because our interpretation of what's happening has been formed and shaped by so many external factors. So tonight my prayer is that as we look at this story from Jesus once more, that we receive a fresh revelation, a fresh understanding and application for its teaching in our lives. So let's begin by reading it through. So turn with me, if you have your Bibles, uh, to Luke chapter 10, and we're going to start at verse 25. A man stood up who knew the law and tried to trap Jesus. He said, teacher, what must I do to have life that lasts forever? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What does the law say? The man said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart. You must love him with all your soul. You must love him with all your strength. You must love him with all your mind. You must love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus said to him, you've said the right thing. Do this and you will have life. The man tried to make himself look good. He asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to the city of Jericho. Robbers came out after him. They took his clothes off and beat him. Then they went away, leaving him almost dead. A religious leader was walking down that road and saw the man, but he went by on the other side. In the same way, a man from the family group of Levi was walking down that road. When he saw the man who was hurt, he came near, but kept going on the other side of the road. Then a man from the country of Samaria came by. He went up to the man, and he saw him. He had loving pity on him. He got down and put oil and wine on the places where he was hurt, and put a cloth around them. Then the man from Samaria put this man on his own donkey. He took him to a place where people stay for the night and cared for him. The next day, the man from Samaria was ready to leave. He gave the owner of that place two pieces of money to care for him. He said to him, take care of this man. If you use more than this, I will give it to you when I come again. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who was beaten by the robbers? The man who knew the law said, the one who showed loving pity on him. And Jesus said, go and do the same. Tonight we're going to go for a classic three-point talk as we look at this together. We're going to look at the question, the characters, and the heart. So let's start with point number one, the question. At the start of our text, the man stands up and asks Jesus a question. This man was an expert in the law and had a very specific question to ask Jesus. What should I do in order to inherit eternal life? Jesus, probably sensing that this was a trap, replies with a question. 
It's a very common and very useful teaching method. I actually used it quite recently myself. One of my girls uh, came and said, asked me if the tooth fairy was real. In this moment, I imagine what uh, I experienced what Jesus may have felt. This is a trap. <laughs> Remembering some very wise advice that Nicholas Skinner had once given Soph several years before, I responded with, what do you think? Crisis averted for another day. Jesus is put in a position where within the crowd there would have been a whole range of thoughts on how Jesus should answer. And so very wisely and astutely, he responds with a question. What is written in the law? A masterclass from Jesus in how to avoid uh, answering a loaded question. The man's an expert in the law and Jesus throws a question back on him. And the lawyer goes on to quote Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength. And he quotes Leviticus 19, verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Ding, 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 Jesus says. Correct answer. The question which the Lord had asked was a common rabbinic question. And if his own summary sounds very familiar, it's probably because it's the exact same summary of the law that Jesus gives in Mark 12 and Matthew 22. As an aside, we mustn't fall into the thought that these are the only two laws that Jesus gives us. He also tells us to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies, to do not worry, and quite a few other things. But the, the two that are offered by the lawyer here and by Jesus in those other scriptures summarize the big picture of the law. They're the heartbeat from which everything flows. The lawyer was hoping that Jesus would have said something by now that was heretical. But his reply, asking the man to define the law himself, meant that he needed to try harder to trick and trip up Jesus. And that was probably his motivation behind asking the second question. Well, who is my neighbor? According to a very strict interpretation of the law, which he just quoted from Leviticus 19, the term neighbor was confined to Israelites only. The lawyer is trying to get Jesus to say something which contradicts the view that so that the leaders and the teachers of the law can declare Jesus as a heretic. But again, rather than give a direct answer, Jesus tells a parable demonstrating the outrageous, far-reaching grace of God and shows that who qualifies as our neighbor has no restrictions or limits. Jesus ends the interaction by flipping the lawyer's question around. Rather than asking, who is my neighbor, i.e., who should I extend love to? Jesus says, who turned out to be the neighbor of the Jew lying at the side of the road? Who is the one who showed you love? Simple, obvious moral challenge to go and do the same is underpinned by a much stronger challenge. Can you recognize the Samaritan as your neighbor. If you can't, then you'll end up dead and alone at the side of the road. The far-reaching, radical grace of God is available to all people. Who is our neighbor? Everyone, even those we may despise. Which leads us nicely to point number two, the characters. The parable begins with a man who's walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. Those listening would have fully understood that whilst this was not the most direct route to take, it was considered the safest. However, it wasn't completely safe. 
The road contains many twists and turns and undulations and robbers would often hide behind one of the corners or in a dip ready to pounce. And that's what happened. For some reason, the traveler was alone and therefore he was an easy target. The robbers sprang from their hideout, stripped and naked, taking all that he had and beat him so severely that those walking past would have had no idea if the man were dead or alive. The next character we meet is the priest, and he hurried past. We can only presume why, we can, but it's likely that he had known that if he went to help the man and if he'd found him to be dead, he himself would have become ceremonially unclean and so not able to perform the duties in his temple for seven days. The priest's duty and liturgical responsibilities took precedence above extending compassion. A Levite is the next to pass. His reaction is also to ignore the man and walk on by. And one commentator I read said that it was common for robbers to use a decoy, someone pretending to be injured. So when a person comes and approaches to offer help, the gang jump them and attack. The implication here being that the Levite doesn't want to take a risk of helping in case it becomes too costly for him. Finally, we meet the Samaritan. What we need to know is that the Jews and Samaritans despised one another. Tom Wright says that they're like poison for each other. It would be the equivalent of a member of one of the most violent gangs in the world, MS-13, stopping to help one of their fierce rivals from the Latina Kings. Or a member of the UDA reaching out to help a member of the IRA. Or a Ukrainian soldier coming to the aid of a Wagner Group mercenary. It's almost unthinkable, unpalatable. Such was the dislike between these two groups. Luke has a particular interest in the Jewish-Samaritan relationship, much more than any of the other Gospels. In the previous chapter, Luke writes about how the Samaritans rejected Jesus. In chapter 17, he makes a very specific mention that it was a Samaritan who was grateful, uh, the grateful leper that came back to thank Jesus. And in the book of Acts, Luke describes the mission to the Samaritans. So despite writing for a non-Jewish audience, Luke assumes that the hatred between these two groups was well known and well understood. So the impact on the crowd that had gathered to listen to this exchange would have been really significant. As it translates into English, the emphasis and the stark contrast, the jar of it being a Samaritan compared to the priest or the Levite is lost. But those listening, it would have been considerably shocking bordering on offensive to think that a Samaritan was the hero in the story, unlike the priest who rushed past not wanting the interaction to mess up his future engagements. The Samaritan stopped and helped. Unlike the Levite not prepared to take the risk in case it was too costly, the Samaritan stopped and helped. And we see that compassion requires action. The Samaritan tended to the man, he poured oil and wine on his wounds, the oil softening the wound and the wine acting as a form of antiseptic. He clothed him and took him to a place where he could recover and heal. The Samaritan's actions and his compassion was costly, but without his actions, the man would surely have died. And that leads us nicely to point three, the heart of the story. 
to find the heart, we've been, helpfully, uh, we've been helped by Luke's careful and deliberate composition of his text. So the key turning point in the story is when the Samaritan sees the man and is moved with compassion. In the version that I read out, it said he saw, had loving pity on the man. The Greek word for this is splachnizomai. It translates literally as his bowels were moved. This word is only used three times by Luke. In <laughs> Siri is not a fan of my Greek. <laughs> Probably most people who speak Greek are not a fan of my Greek either. So Luke 7 verse 13, in the raising of the widow's son, we see when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and said, don't cry. Luke 10, 33, the parable of the Good Samaritan we've just read. But the Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. Luke 15, verse 20, parable of the lost son. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. In each of these examples, the word splachnizomai is at the numerical center of the narrative. And it's also at the very moment that the story changes. Luke's writing is very intentional and very deliberate. And the fact that he only uses this word three times in his writing means that there's a point he's trying to make. In the raising of the widow's son, Jesus is moved with compassion. In the parable of the lost son, God the Father is moved with compassion. In the parable of the good Samaritan, the Samaritan is moved with compassion. This word splachnizomai is a word that Luke appears to reserve to explain the compassion and the grace of God. It means in the parable of the Good Samaritan, God takes the role of the Samaritan. Which leads us to the question, who's the one on the side of the road? Who's the one beaten, bruised, robbed, facing certain death? Well, the one at the side of the road is us. God walks along the road. God sees us where we are. God sees us in our sin. God sees us in our shame. God sees us in our nakedness. God sees us lying there knowing that we face certain death. God is moved with compassion. God, splach knees am I. He has an intense physical reaction to seeing where we are that he can't move past. So he stops, he comes to where we are, he tends to our wounds, he clothes us, he lifts us from our despair and pain, at pain, and he pays the cost in order for us to be restored. God's actions bring us back to life. The Samaritan put no limit on the cost that he would pay for the man to be taken care of. It says the next day he took out two denarii, two days' wages. He gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. When I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expenses you might have. And there was no limit to the price that Jesus was willing to pay to bring us back to life. It cost Jesus a brutal, agonizing, torturous death on the cross for us to be transferred from certain death to life. 
cross is central to our lives. We're nothing without the cross. How then should we respond to this parable? Well, there is undoubtedly an important moral message for us to learn. How we treat others is important. We all carry prejudice. There are those of us, if our journey or our plans are interrupted, we'd still want to help. But there are also those who we wouldn't. Those, if they were in need, we might lay the blame at their feet, walk on by. Only got themselves to blame. We can approach others with judgment, look down on them, see them as unworthy of our time, of our care, of our love. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to come and reveal the prejudice we have so we can repent and ask for a fresh filling of the compassion of the Father. There's also a message that was around people who we believe are beyond help. Maybe the two men walked past because they felt the situation was hopeless. The man was already dead, beyond help. And for us, sometimes we can feel that people are beyond the reach of the gospel, beyond the redeeming grace of God because they're too dead in their sin. The man on the side of the road was facing certain death. In fact, two people did walk past thinking he was already dead. The Samaritan cared enough to stop and in doing so saved his life. Sometimes we too can be guilty of believing that people's lives are maybe too complicated. Or people's lives are too sinful. Thinking that unless they change how they're living, there's no point in saying anything. There's no point in stopping. Think they're already dead. The risk is too high. The interruption to our lives too big. We see them facing certain death. And do nothing. We have a sadness and a care for them in our heart, but the risk feels too big, the complexity too messy, and so we say nothing. Tonight we need to be reminded that God is big, His grace is wide, His grace is deep. There's nothing anyone has done which is beyond the redemptive love of God. The cross is for everyone. We need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to come and move us with compassion for those who don't know him. And that that compassion moves us into action of extending and sharing the gospel and the good news with them. They have been moved with compassion to notice, to stop, to meet others where they are, to love them where they are to tend to them where they are, to bring them to the foot of the cross and experience the outrageous love of Jesus for themselves. Our job isn't to fix people. Our job is to make the introductions. God brings about the healing. But the heart of the parable concerns the heart. You see, we don't reach out and extend love to others and help to others, and generosity to others. Because, like the lawyer, it's what we should do. We ask the question, what do we need to do to be generous? 
What must we do to receive the grace and the love of God for ourselves? Now We're motivated to do these things because we've received for ourselves the outrageous, compassionate, pursuing, undeserved grace and love of God. We know that whilst we were still dead in our sin, moved with compassion, God stepped into his creation in the person of Jesus and gave up everything in order that we might live. We've received and continue to receive the radical, life-changing, compassionate grace of God. And it's this and this alone which motivates us to share that generosity with those around us. 1 John 4:19 says we love because he first loves us. Matthew 10 verse 8 freely you've received freely give. Ian Paul summarizes this parable by saying the practical lesson of the parable of the good samaritan is to give others what we have already been given. You see the cross is at the center of it all. Because it's nothing we've done. It's nothing we've earned. It's all God's grace. Last Sunday morning, Ollie shared a story from Alistair Begg regarding a prisoner on the cross. And it went something like this. The prisoner reaches heaven. The angel says to him, what are you doing here? I don't know, says the man. What do you mean you don't know? Well, I don't know. I just need to get my supervisor. So just a few questions for you before you can come in. First of all, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? The guy says, I've never heard of it. What about the doctrine of Scripture? The guy looks blank. On what basis then are you here? And he simply replies, the man on the middle cross said I could come. I found that so powerful. This is the reason that we live. It's the reason we have life. It's because of Jesus. Without remembering the cross, we quickly fall into thinking like the lawyer. What must I do? Or thinking that we're okay because we're a good person. Or we do good things. Or we're motivated by this is what we should do. It's all grace. In the summer... Pete Buchan, when he was uh, sharing with us, reminded us of a passage from Isaiah that says, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And Pete reminded us, it's 100% grace, 100% of the time. The cross is at the heart. We're facing certain death. And Jesus went to the cross in order that we might have life, and life in all its fullness. We were naked, beaten, dead at the side of the road. God walked along the road. He saw us. He stopped. He came to us. He cared for us. He paid the cost for us to have life. Because of the Samaritan's actions, the man was moved from certain death into life. Because of Jesus' actions, we're moved from certain death into life. And so we're called to extend that love, that grace, that compassion to others. 
using what we've received to generously extend the love and compassion of God to others through our words, our actions, our money, our time, our prayers. Freely you have received. Freely give. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you that whatever happens in our lives, whatever situation we face, whatever trial it is that we walk through, whatever celebration we delight in, I pray that we would never forget the cross. We never forget what it cost. Thank you that you saw us where we were and moved with compassion, you acted. Stepping into the world you created, you took our place and paid the debt we owed and offered us a way back to you, a way back into life. I pray that we become people so aware of the grace which we've received, that we become radical in our generosity towards others. You've created each of us unique. All manner of gifts and talents and time and opportunities. I pray you'd help us to be open to divine interruption as we move about our lives. I pray that you'd help us to remove the distraction and move us with compassion for others. Father, I pray that when we have times where we feel our life would be easier if only I was somewhere else, help us not to flee, but to trust in your grace. Father, I pray that when we lack the attentive care for our neighbor, that you'd remind us how you laid down your life for us while we were still an enemy. I pray that we'll be people who remember that freely we have received, And so freely we give to others.